1972, Joey Gallo killed in Little Italy during dinner at Umberto's Clam House. They get there by violence, and often as not, they leave by violence. Between three and five million dollars in cash and valuables was taken from the Lufthansa cargo terminal out at Kennedy Airport. I can give you guys a half a million dollars a year without a problem. New York City is a war zone for mobsters and their targets. Hello everyone, and welcome into part three episode 57 of The Black Hand, an organized crime history podcast. I'm your host, Bliss Grieve, and on today's show, we continue our look into the history of deputy gangs in the L.A. County Sheriff's Department. Last week, we talked about Frankie Carrillo's fight for justice against the Linwood Vikings, as well as their deep-seated corruption that allowed them to abuse and harass department members all the way up and down the chain of command. But this week, we'll be talking about one of the new age gangs that they set the stage for in the Century Station Regulators, which actually preceded the Linwood Station. Yet another group that imposed terrible violence on the local community while being covered up by the department's leadership and spread to other stations. Before we get started, if you want to support the show, please rate it, and go follow the show's Instagram and Twitter pages at the Black Hand Pod, and please feel free to reach out. Also, consider giving a little bit to the show's Venmo at the Black Hand Pod as well. The link's in the description. But without further ado, let's get right into today's episode. To start off, we have to go back to the late 90s when a new breed of deputy gangs started to emerge one of the most prominent being the Century Station Regulators, based in the Century Station in Linwood. Which shouldn't be surprising, because if you remember, the Century Station was opened after the Linwood Station was closed, but more than that, it merged both the Linwood and Firestone Stations, meaning that there was likely a concentration of members of both the Linwood Vikings and the Pirates who were founded in the Firestone Station. So at best, deputy gangs were intentionally overlooked in the station, and at worst, they were promoted, which could explain the rise of the regulators. They were active as early as 1999, and by the early 2000s, they had essentially taken over the station. Both LASD leaders and line deputies repeatedly complained that the regulators had undue influence over station managerial decisions such as overtime assignments and promotions. Regulators also refused to talk to internal affairs investigators, and they collected quote-unquote donations or taxes to support deputies placed on unpaid leave for their misconduct. To the point that by 2003, Anonymous deputies reported various acts of misconduct by regulators members and compared them to the Mexican Mafia prison gang. And like many other deputy gangs, there's substantial evidence that LASD management knew about the regulators, but decidedly did nothing. Specifically, Sheriff Baca was advised by Under Sheriff Stinch about the unhealthy climate at the Century Station 
which included regulators' members refusing to be interviewed during investigations of alleged misconduct, as well as allegations of in-house corruption. Compounded by similar concerns raised by Commander Willie Miller, noting that the regulators' philosophy is to, quote, run the station as a subculture faction and not respect rank, which would soon cost the department, because in 2005, a self-admitted member of the gang ironically filed a suit against the county, alleging that the county was discriminating against him and other Latino members, eventually being awarded over $1 million of taxpayer money. In 2005, Deputy Angel Jaimes, a Latino man, was a deputy sheriff assigned to the Century Station. And though Jaimes wouldn't tell how many deputies belonged to the group, he said that he was the 63rd to join, and by 2005, the gang's members had even spread to other stations. Reportedly, anonymous letters, allegedly written by deputies outside the group, accused members of extorting money from other deputies, acting like gang members, and heavily influencing shift scheduling and administration at the Century Station. And in step with this kind of corruption, Jaimes received positive performance reviews until Sergeant Arthur Scott was assigned to the Century Station in October 2000. By June 29, 2004, Jaimes said that Captain Denny held a meeting at the station to clear the air regarding comments that Sergeant Scott had made in the past, but there was no discussion. So when he asked to speak freely, Jaime stated that he felt Scott was getting disparate treatment and was able to get away with things that other personnel wouldn't have been able to. Just two weeks after the meeting, Jaime was transferred, and shortly after that, the department even filed a complaint against him for insubordination. At which point, Jaimes filed his own suit against the county, which eventually resulted in him being awarded $1.1 million, while the county was also on the hook for attorney fees. Jaimes also appears to have retired on disability in 2017, and receives over $100,000 in pension every year. And ironically enough, his case seems to have caused a divide in the Vikings as some older Vikings appeared to dislike the regulators, while others lent their support to the younger gang. But it wasn't long before another regulator would get themselves paid, and it would tie back into the Jaime's case. Catherine Brown Voyer joined the LASD in 1987, starting her career at the Linwood Station before being named as an associate of the Vikings in the class action lawsuit that we talked about in part one. Then, in 1990, Brown Voyer participated in a botched raid on the home of a Latinx family of seven, beating several members with batons and flashlights. She was eventually promoted to lieutenant and assigned to the Century Station, but her career took a turn for the worse when she became an advocate for self-admitted regulator Deputy Angel Jaimes. In June 2004, Brown Voyer says Captain James Lopez asked if she had heard Jaimes call Sergeant Scott, quote, a piece of shit during a briefing, to which she responded that she hadn't. In court documents, she alleges that Lopez became angry with her because she didn't support Scott 
and was given a 15-day suspension. And after she complained, she was transferred from her position and denied an approved transfer to the Homicide Bureau. Brown Voyer claims that she was also unjustly investigated and suspended for failing to respond to a deputy-involved traffic collision while out of town. She eventually filed a lawsuit against the county for sexual harassment, discrimination, and retaliation in 2004, which was settled in 2010 for $800,000, funded entirely by taxpayers. But in the aftermath, two captains testified that Voyer damaged her reputation by backing Jaimes and other Latino deputies. In a deposition, Captain Joaquin Haran, a name you might remember from last week, said that following her lawsuit against the county, Brown Voyer was not recommended as a promotion to captain. As she was known to have associated with various Latino officers, it was well known to have testified in the discrimination claims of Deputy Angel Jaimes. And she wasn't the only person who received such treatment, because just a few years later, Brown Voyer sued the county once again, along with another lieutenant named Nicholas Rampone. In their complaint, the lieutenants allege that the LASD listed Rampone's race as Hispanic, despite the fact that he's Italian. And like Voyer, after he provided testimony for Jaimes' case against the county, Rampone was passed over for promotion to captain, despite testing well for the position. The complaint also says that confidants to undersheriff and tattooed Viking Paul Tanaka reached out to Brown Voyer to set up a meeting to iron things out, but Tanaka himself didn't agree to meet. Tanaka was appointed as undersheriff of the department in June 2011, where he served as undersheriff of the department until he resigned in the midst of a federal probe into ongoing abuse in the county jails which we'll get into very soon. During his time in the department, he also held several city government positions in Gardena. Tanaka was elected to the city council in 1999 and won his campaign for mayor in 2005 and was re-elected to the seat in 2009 and again in 2013. And even though he received a federal indictment in 2015, he continued to hold the seat. Tanaka even served as mayor up until he was convicted in 2016 in a federal court for conspiracy and obstruction of justice. Tanaka had been accused of using his senior-level position within the department to extort members for contributions to his campaign for the mayor of Gardena. In exchange for a cash payment of at least $500 and an agreement to never report a fellow department member, gang members and associates could quickly climb the ranks, according to court documents. Some even earned an invitation to his exclusive cigar-smoking club on a patio at the department's headquarters. And if deputies were caught not following procedure, or working in the so-called gray area, they were promised Tanaka's protection. He also allegedly gave orders to manipulate Hispanic deputies' test scores to ensure that they would never advance in rank. And though Sheriff Baca was questioned in Voyer's prior lawsuit about gangs within the department and acknowledged the existence of several, he refused to take any type of corrective action. Brown Voyer was also allegedly denied a doctor-recommended surgery for years, finally receiving treatment in 2011 
five years after her doctor made the request. Rampone and Voyer settled their suit in 2015 for $100,000, and they are both now retired and collect pensions of over $100,000 each. Another case exposed the varying influence of deputy gangs. There hasn't been any evidence released of internal corrective action taken as a result. But before long, the regulator's influence would spread into the men's central jail. Because by the late 2000s, Paul Tanaka promoted several LASD members who welcomed the gang's style of law enforcement to senior positions at the jail. Among them was Charles McDaniel, a floor sergeant who admitted under oath that he was inked with a skull associated with the regulators, and he was on duty on October 16, 2009, when a group of deputies severely beat a man awaiting trial. Deputy Anthony Vasquez allegedly started the confrontation by pulling Tyler Willis out of his cell and forcing him to strip naked, squat, and cough in a public setting, according to court documents. As Willis complied, Vasquez wondered aloud about the nature of Willie's charges and even told Willis to give the details of his case or remain squatting. Willis refused, and Vasquez returned him to his cell followed by four more deputies, and once inside the cell, their group of deputies beat Willis with their flashlights, causing multiple head injuries, fractures to the body, and a broken leg. Following the assault, deputy reportedly even shocked Willis with a taser, burning him. But Willis survived, took his case to trial, and was awarded a million dollars as a result. Sheriff Lee Baca was eventually found responsible for $100,000 and the deputies responsible for $10,000 each, an unusual step taken as a result of a jury trial, while taxpayers once again picked up their remainder as well as the lawyer fees. But none of the participants in the beating appeared to have been disciplined for their actions, and in time, the jails would become the subject of another deputy gang scandal. Meanwhile, the regulators continued to unleash their brutality on the people of Los Angeles. On June 12, 2012, 27-year-old Kenneth Rivera was standing shirtless and unarmed in a pair of jeans outside of the La Siesta Motel in Linwood. Documents from the LA District Attorney's Office suggest that he was in the midst of a mental health episode worsened by drugs. As a young girl allegedly witnessed Rivera grab a teenager sitting nearby and promptly run away, an observer called 911, which put out a dispatch for a potential kidnapping. Deputy Norma Silva was in the area and drove past Rivera, made a U-turn, and stopped just past where he stood in front of the motel. Several witnesses testified at trial that Rivera approached Silva with his hands up, saying, quote, I'm the one you're looking for. But as he turned away, Silva fired three shots, severing one of his vertebrae, at which point Rivera collapsed on the ground and bled profusely. According to the complaint, he was denied medical attention and instead handcuffed, dying shortly after. In the aftermath, the Rivera family obviously lodged a complaint against the county following Kenneth's death 
alleging that several LASD members participated in a cover-up of the shooting by seizing and destroying video camera footage. The case eventually settled for $1.5 million during the trial, which was funded by taxpayer money as the regulator's body count continued to grow, especially due to a deputy named Jason Zabala, who was an inked regulator and responsible for the deaths of at least two people. He admitted to getting a regulator's gang tattoo at a Sunset Beach shop and says that he was the 140th person to receive the design. The tattoo depicts a skeleton wearing a star-shaped badge and cowboy hat, holding a pistol next to a tombstone, displaying the Century Station logo. A diamond-shaped crest with Nordic-appearing letters spelling out C-E-N on top of the Roman numeral for 21 below. But the combination of the skeleton with the grave marker suggests that Zabala had ties to both the Century Station regulators and the Palmdale Cowboys. In October 2011, an on-duty Zabala ran a red light and was involved in a collision with a 49-year-old Sonia Benton. The impact gravely injured her spine, causing long-term damage and prompting a fusion surgery. At the beginning of the case, the county's counsel asserted that Benton's injuries weren't serious and that the surgery wasn't necessary. The case settled for $80,000 before going to trial, while Zabala remained a deputy. Then, about two years later, on May 18, 2013, Terry Lafitte was riding his bicycle through the Van Ness neighborhood of South Los Angeles. According to court documents, Deputies Oscar Barrios and Jason Zabala didn't see a safety light on Lafitte's bike, and they stated that they pursued Lafitte and he ignored their orders to stop. They chased him to his house and even into the backyard to allegedly cite him for riding the bike without proper equipment, according to court documents. Inside the house were his sisters, nieces, and nephews who heard the commotion and came outside to investigate. Lafitte's nephew testified that upon coming outside, he witnessed the deputies tackle his uncle to a prone position on the ground without saying a word to Lafitte, and as the young man's sisters followed him outside into the melee, the nephew called Lafitte's sister, Sandra Cotton, for help. Cotton, who was pregnant at the time, said under oath that she began filming the incident and that a deputy assaulted her. She said that Lafitte's nephew stated that the deputies ordered him to the ground at gunpoint and a peace officer hit him. As he moved to lay down, the deputies placed Lafitte in a headlock, at which point they beat him with their flashlights before shooting Lafitte execution style in the back of the head. Immediately, several deputies descended on the scene and confiscated the cell phones of the witnesses to the fatal shooting, while several were also arrested. Neighbors even told family members that the sheriff's department members hung around in the backyard with Lafitte's dead body for hours, cracking jokes and laughing. And though the deputies later claimed that Lafitte had a gun, Zabala said in his deposition that he never saw a weapon on him. A handgun was recovered from the scene, 
but it tested negative for Lafitte's DNA. The testing did conclude, however, that at least two other individuals handled the gun. And while Lafitte's family settled the case for $1.5 million before it went to trial, the deputies who killed Terry Lafitte were never charged, and it doesn't appear that they were even disciplined. It appears as if Barrios was still a member of the department as recently as 2019, and horrifyingly, Zabala went on to kill another man in front of his family. In the mid-2010s, Johnny Martinez moved in with his parents, Roberto and Antonia, in the Florence neighborhood of Los Angeles shortly after being diagnosed with schizophrenia. Despite that, he was mostly on good terms with the neighbors, but he did get into a verbal argument with one on the evening of October 14, 2014. According to Ryan Casey, who represented the Martinez family in a lawsuit against the county, Martinez was eating just before the arguments. But when things got heated, Martinez bear-hugged Jose Hernandez, cutting his face with a fork in the process. At which point, Hernandez's 13-year-old son called 911 and were put through to several dispatchers who erroneously reported Jose as stabbed. The final dispatcher even called the younger Hernandez slow when he attempted to correct her and communicate that Martinez was calmly sitting on his porch with his parents nearby. She also insisted that the 13-year-old approach the deputies and clarify mistakes made in the dispatch himself. But Casey says that when responding deputies Jason Zabala, Jay Brown, Ernesto Hernandez Posadas, and Pedro Guerrero Gonzalez arrived at the scene, they ignored both the neighbors who called for help and the Martinez family's attempts to explain what was happening. Martinez remained seated on his parents' step as the deputies approached. He held a small steak knife in his hands and laid it on the ground when asked, according to the complaint. But despite his compliance, the deputies stated that they shot a taser at Martinez, then employed pepper spray. Next, all four fired their weapons, shooting Martinez at least 36 times. One of the bullets also struck Hernandez, who was standing nearby, injuring him. Martinez died on the steps in front of his family, neighbors, and the child who called 911. The deputies who shot Martinez were found somehow to have acted in self-defense, and no charges were filed. Zabala was even promoted to a gang detective unit called Operation Safe Streets. Both the Martinez family and Jose Hernandez filed civil suits against the county and were awarded $2.5 million and $2 million, respectively. However, the regulators, of course, remained unfazed and had gained standing as a respected deputy gang, among others. But that's really all I have for you guys today. I hope everyone thoroughly enjoyed today's show and tunes back in next week for part 4 of episode 57, where we'll talk about the rise of deputy gangs in the county jail system, including the 2,000 and 3,000 boys, who similarly carried out horrific violence and were consistently covered up by the top brass in the sheriff's department.
If you enjoyed today's show, please rate it and follow the show's Instagram and Twitter pages at the Black Hand Pod. And feel free to reach out with feedback, suggestions, and comments. Also, please consider giving a little bit to the show's Venmo at the Black Hand Pod as well. But with that said, I hope you all have a great rest of your day. This is your host, Bliss Grieve, signing out.